Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about perfectionism. And probably this is a bit more personal to folks as like an attitude towards labor, among other things. So maybe we can start by talking about sort of how perfectionism has been a part of our lives or not. Yeah. What what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something I think is relatable to a lot of women that listen to this podcast, a lot of women that are my friends, and to myself personally, like I had perfectionist tendencies, like in public school, and felt like I had to, you know, like anything less than an A wasn't good enough, like just a weird drive to like, get everything right. Luckily, I was an awkward enough (laughs) person, uh, and failed at enough things. And I feel like my parents did a good job of not shielding me from failure. You know, I, I feel like a lot of parents like try and shield their children from failure. And I think fortunately my parents let me live in my failure and understand it and use it as a learning experience. And I think that probably kind of broke the spell where I had like this perfectionist tendency. Um, but then I like, as I fucked up, You know, as every kid does, I started to, like, understand that those things were important uh, and, like, formative for me. I I don't feel like I've been a perfectionist since, you know, I was, like, a junior in high school. Like, playing basketball, not being great at basketball, being awkward, failing in a lot of social situations, I think put me on a better path to, like, embrace things that weren't going well and luckily not keep perfectionism as something I was striving towards as an adult, which has been helpful. (laughs) How about you? I mean, is that something you ever dealt with? No, I, you know, when I, when I started thinking about this episode, I was thinking a lot about how perfectionism is a class thing and I was not surrounded by perfectionists at all. And I would say that growing up poor, like I, my mom was constantly admonishing me to like work hard and we're hard workers and It was very much a philosophy of labor and not so much about perfection as the ultimate outcome. So I do not have perfectionist tendencies at all. That said, I feel like because I'm, you know, a race scholar and I do gender work, I feel like to be able to be effective, I have to be pretty close to perfect in terms of my political commitments and how I am, especially when I'm doing predictive work or descriptive work about things to come. I feel like I have to be pretty perfect. I have to be right a lot. I mean, being wrong is not exactly the same as being a perfectionist, but I feel a different way towards the kind of work that I do as an adult, but almost exclusively in terms of like moral perfectionism. I feel like I'm a very exacting person about morality and people's ability to be morally accountable. So I'm particularly unforgiving about moral failure. (laughs) You know, I think that's where my Achilles heel is around perfectionism. Well, I think accountability is a little different than perfectionism, right? It gives you the room to fail, but then admit that you're wrong and then make amends. You know, while I think perfectionism is not something anyone should strive for, And it's not possible, right? So it's like a specter that (laughs) is like looming that you can never really like touch. 
but the accountability side in the morality side, like I think you should strive towards certain principles. You shouldn't just be like, I'm not going to be perfect. So all bets are off. I'm just going to flail through. <laughs> if you're not <laughs> first, you're last. <laughs> yeah. You know, having accountability as the frame is so much healthier than having perfectionism as your frame, because then you can say like, yeah, I'm going to fail, but I'm not going to like gaslight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, perfectionism is the opposite of play. It's exclusive of play. And having play as like an essential part of my politics of self and sense of self has helped me to wildly avoid the perfectionist pitfalls of like white gal culture. Because I do think that perfectionism is also hyper white. I think it's advertised as whiteness. I think it's a central component of white femininity. And I've been able to, I think, dodge that because I play really hard and because I do the race work. But I think perfectionists cannot play because inherently there's risk involved in play. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but also in, like IRL, that you have to be willing to fail to play. Like your jokes aren't always going to land, Right. Sometimes you're going to offend somebody. Sometimes you're not going to circle won't complete the square. It's not going to always be the 10 point landing. And I think perfectionists can't play. And so I find that to be very difficult interpersonally to deal with perfectionists. And they're not good in social movements, but they're also they can be very unfun. Yeah, I mean, they're not authentic, right? I feel like perfectionism makes you hide things about yourself that aren't ideal but I feel like that's also like hiding parts of yourself that are unique and that like bring interesting things to the table. Perfectionists are like this thing that makes me different is something I have anxiety about. And yeah. so then they hide that from people. It's not fun. You know, they can't have fun. They can't be challenged. It just generates all these other negative emotions. You can't roast them, for example. Even gently. They can't be challenged. It makes them defensive. The thing about perfectionism is it's, it has a lot of baggage, essentially. So if you are a perfectionist, you feel tremendous shame. You get defensive. You lie. You become a liar. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I think about perfectionists is that they're exclusively pleasers, which, I mean, anybody who's been listening to the podcast knows is like a total trigger for me. I... The pleasing is so full of lies and is so accommodating to white supremacy and fascism and sexism and heterosexism. And it's really toxic. And so I don't know any perfectionists that aren't also pleasers. I mean, not that all people who have perfectionist stages are perfectionists for the whole course of their life, as I think you so eloquently discussed. And I'm not really exhibiting total contempt for the stages of perfectionism that are that afflict particularly middle-class white women. But I think among the grown-ups, you know, I really, I can't manage perfectionism as it is expressed as pleasing because it is so dense with self-absorption and narcissism. And it is so avoidant of accountability that I find it to be vapid and vacuous and unworkable in political spaces completely because in politics there's failure all over the place in politics you can't be a perfectionist and be involved certainly in liberation movements because they 
are forced failures by state violence. So social movements, they can't accommodate perfectionism. They're antithetical. They cannot coexist. You know, it's like having fire without air. I mean, it's just not workable. So I think the pleasing for me is really a canary in the coal mine, you know, that there are a bunch of other toxic behaviors present with perfectionists. I mean, if you're going to have a real social movement, you have to be willing to be arrested. You have to show up willing to look bad to your boss. You have to... You have to be the asshole sometimes. Exactly. And I say this is the person who is obviously okay with being the asshole sometimes. But that is a a bridge too far for a lot of people, certainly for perfectionists. They can't even handle it. It's just all pearl clutching. Like, what if somebody dislikes me? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why perfectionism, I, would, I don't want to call it an, an emotion because it's not that, an orientation, I would say. It that is an affect, though. An it affect. does come with yeah. an affect. It really does. It's avoidant. Perfectionism is an extension of avoidant politics. It's certainly anxious in the same ways that you described because of its deep-rootedness and shame and fear of failure. But it's fundamentally anti-community. Perfectionism cannot accommodate community building. And this isn't to say that perfectionists don't deserve community. I mean, I'm not making a statement about that. But it is very hard to build community as a perfectionist because it's such an anxious, avoidant constellation of affect. I feel like the only time I've been able to build community is with like anti-perfectionist projects, like calling out perfectionism or like being extremely vulnerable um, in a way that's like, you know, self-deprecating or, you know, unflattering. And those types of things like relate more to people. And so the selfies from below project we've discussed before on the podcast. I mean, that is a critique of like the curation of social media to like only provide the most perfect views of windows into your life as possible. And then like showing, you know, a different angle I mean, that created a tremendous amount of, like, participation among my friend group in a way that, like, if I had just been posting about, like, how great my life is, you know, that wouldn't have generated the same engagement. So, I mean, I'm not saying a social media project is the (laughs) example of what it should be a community building, like, exercise, but the difference in response that you get when you're vulnerable or when you're, like, willing to show your ugly side it's powerful. And I I think just trying something like that and trying to relate to people about things you're not doing well, or the things that keep you up at night, or the fact that you're anxious, or the fact this isn't working out for you. I mean, I, I think a lot of people benefit from the perpetuation of a perfectionist angle. Your workplace wants you to be a perfectionist, because obviously it benefits them if you are constantly striving. And covering up all the things that aren't working for you and like hiding that things aren't going well. There are a lot of, I think, powers that be that benefit from you promoting a version of yourself that doesn't confront the problems with our economy or the problems with our culture. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about complaint and complaint is the opposite of perfectionist because perfectionists don't complain unless it's self-serving. Right. So I think the irony is that 
perfectionism produces fragility, which makes it easily to co-opt their labor into projects that undermine their efficacy and their self-esteem and their affective labor. And perfectionism is definitely a fascist boon. And also I think that white fascists tend towards masochism. So the pleasing is a form of masochism. The beauty rituals are a form of masochism. The self-help industry is very much about feeding perfectionism as an affect that they can tap into for cash money. So perfectionism, I think, weakens political will in a way that is fundamentally white. It's the reason why D'Angelo's white fragility continues to circulate is because she points to the way in which, you know, white affects and white political dispositions fundamentally make white people fragile so that they can't participate in community building exercises where they cry or where they get tear gas or where they're arrested because they can't imagine failing or disappointing their parents or having a police record. And that makes them susceptible to all kinds of negative politics that they participate in, whether willingly or subconsciously. I think perfectionism generates this like desire for control because like so much of the things that you deal with day in and day out personally or interpersonally are out of your hands. Like you do not have control over them. So people who are perfectionists try to obtain control however they can. And so that often leads to fascism or it leads to subjecting other people to something that's not better for them. Yeah, social violence. Yeah. I mean, in the workplace, we call it microaggression, right? But it is fundamentally social violence. I think you're right that control is the linchpin of perfectionism. And I think for me, as somebody who does prison work, there is a direct relationship between white lady perfectionism and the expansion of the carceral state, whether it's the desire for people of color to be perfect, right? Perfect citizens, perfect community members, perfectly perfect in a culture where all of the systemic inequality is designed to make perfect unattainable for everyone, right? Who's not within that 1% of white wealth, but certainly for people of color. And I think perfectionism drives the carceral and languages of perfectionism drive the carceral law and order as a phrase is fundamentally about ideal citizenship and perfect whiteness as a category of citizenship. So I think you're right that control at a very macro level is about the carceral and is at the micro level it's about controlling as much of one's environment as possible including other people i mean i think that gets to the like what makes you a perfectionist like what would be perfect is like a narrative that has been created for you basically being imperfect is like being different uh-huh. or challenging a certain norm and so I feel like there's a degree to which perfectionism is about not being different. And that leads into ostracizing anyone who challenges that. But also it gets back to the pleasing too. Like someone else created this notion of what should be perfect and not questioning that at all is a problem. Anna Kredic has this book, Perfectly Normal, and it's all about conformity in the post-war years, like right after World War II, and about how much effort was produced by 
ad agencies and governmental entities and public policy experts to create this idea of normal, like getting back to normal, being normal, having a normal sexuality, having, you know, being normal. And so normal really did not circulate in American public life until after the war, probably because people had so much fucking trauma. And no path forward, right? Because psychology was nascent. It's not like there was a bunch of mental health care. And so normal became a way of controlling people's social behaviors, but also their expectations of others, right? So it was a tool of measurement in post-war years that was really, really salient. And it was only through liberation movements that normal got destroyed. And it's funny that you bring up this idea of like what constitutes perfectionism because I can remember even as a little kid people would ask me well don't you want to be married or don't you want to have kids or don't you want to blah 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 and like even in middle school I would say I just want to have the best stories I want to do wild stuff and have great stories I want to have the best stories at the party and that seems strikes me now obviously it was a disruptive right answer that I gave and I was interested in disrupting all of the normal institutions that I belong to as a white kid but it also speaks I think to a nascent understanding about how the opposite of perfectionism is creativity. It's interesting because if you think about it from our species or just from like how nature works evolution is a result of like defects occurring some genetic abnormality providing an advantage humans exist because of imperfection (laughs) yeah right uh and so when you stamp out differences it is toxic for communities it's toxic for work cultures there's like a biological urge and like a social urge to like bring something unique to the table that is counteracted by that need to be perfect. I mean, I think you raise a good point, especially because we're in such a fascist eugenicist moment that the notion of perfection is deeply tied to purity, which is obviously white supremacy 101. Um, And so I like thinking about perfectionism in the organic model because it's obviously bullshit. But in the workplace, I'm thinking a lot about higher ed where I work and it's all like, you know, civility nonsense and collegiality nonsense. And on the one hand, I don't want to work with rapists. So collegiality is sort of important. But on the other hand, I would much rather like audit people for whether or not they're producing durable community and ethical stuff rather than like, are they avoiding any kind of conflict so that they're likable? I mean, you and I talk about Sarah Schulman's, you know, conflict is not abuse a lot. And I think willingness to do conflict is also the opposite of perfectionism. That isn't to say that all conflict is like neutral as a good, but the ability to do conflict is essential for building democracy or collaborative political solidarity or, you know, social movements. And so I work with a lot of higher ed is full of perfectionists and they're mostly hiding from politics And they're hiding from conflict. And that's why they don't have a durable politics. That's why higher ed is so anemic above and beyond just like the reduction in federal funding. Like the academics are unwilling to fight for themselves or their any ideals if they have them because they're busy trying to churn out the perfect number of articles for tenure and the perfect teaching exercises and the perfect relationship to their colleagues. And so... You know, they produce just this vapid, meaningless, apolitical 
and yet implicitly white supremacist organizational culture, which should surprise nobody, really. I mean, it is surprising to an extent. Like, I would expect it for consumer packaged goods company that wants to sell chips away. But to think about it as like an academic community that's also avoidant and unwilling to play or deal in conflict. I feel like uh, academic work is built on debate. It's built on conflict or it should be, right? Like It's built on the notion, false notion of white rigor is what it's, it's built on control. It's built on all the same things. I think the one thing that I think about perfectionism, though, is that you and I, at least in this first part of the conversation, are talking about neurotypical people and perfection. I do think that the thing changes when we talk about neuroatypical people, right? Who are thinking through rules and social engagements with a very different paradigm. And so I don't mean to lump all of the academics together per se, except to say that because perfectionism is seen as um, an essential part of rigor as whiteness in the academy, it defaults to co-opting academics into this kind of low-key warfare about who's perfect. And, And the consequence of that is then it's all punitive, right? who doesn't have enough articles, who hasn't achieved the blah, blah, blah award. And it's obviously unevenly distributed because it's racist and classist and sexist and, you know, ableist. So I think the consequence of perfectionism is that it produces really hyper surveillance and punitive policies, which is why I think it's it enables the carceral for everybody who it comes into contact with. Right. It's no different than policing that way. The, the other thing about it is that no one is operating under the illusion that things are going well or that like the narrative of perfection is like worth fantasizing over. It's a big lie and everyone knows it. Right. But it's just like hard to challenge because there's risk involved with challenging that narrative. And so anytime I challenge the dominant narrative, I feel like I'm just saying out loud, what everyone else already knows or is already feeling. And so I don't know. The one thing I like to use a lot is like, we're not living under a rock, right? Like we see that this isn't working and like putting negative things like under the rug. It doesn't work, right? Like we know that you're lying. Everyone who's being a perfectionist knows that they're lying. Other people know that they're lying. If you're a perfectionist, you know (laughs) um, that it's not real. And so... I don't think anyone's operating under the assumption that when you like look at someone's Instagram feed, that's what their life is really like. Or, you know, whoever's advancing at your organization has a perfect life. One phrase that I use a lot in these kinds of moments is, well, that's a very interesting version of events. Because I feel like it disrupts the spell, right? The politesse and the civility spell where, where the surveillance is turned back. On the perfectionist. And I also just say a lot. I see you. We all see you. And it just seems like enough to jostle how the power is being distributed that way. The panopticon is working that way. Because I I do think that you're right that even micro challenges to the perfectionist reveal that the emperor has no clothes and the whole thing is fucking sham and it's just a giant pile of lies. And it also... The other side of that is that I get older 
I try to hold space because people have shitty parents and shitty middle class white values. And I try to be generous about why they produce this panopticon. But I got to say, it's very hard to hold space for that and acknowledge it without being like, you have trash politics and you're just a fucking Nazi. You know, it's I think it's very I find that very challenging the older that I get, even as I attempt to hold space. I feel like I'm better at not trashing those people in some ways, but I am hostile and very unwilling to collaborate with them ever on anything ever again because it's so toxic and so damaging and they can't be displaced. It's like an army of zombies, right? Like they just keep coming and coming and coming, especially in higher ed. Like there's no shortage of white perfectionists who just, who are so eager They'll throw you under the bus. Yeah, without a doubt. You can't collaborate with them. They're traitors, you know, in a way that is fundamentally political. People like that will do anything possible. For just the promise of of some kind of achievement notch on the belt. They have no skepticism about achievement culture. They have no ability to be honest about their shortcomings. They, like, produce reverence for all this arbitrary social violence of achievement. They re- I don't I don't think that they're true believers, I agree with you, but they will take any opportunity to leverage that for more white power in a way that I think is grotesque. Yeah, I think for me a huge red flag with people is an unwillingness to like self-deprecate or like to criticize themselves or to admit failure. Like biggest red flag to me. But it's also like these people, when you engage their sense of self, it's like a job interview, like straight out of college, where you're like, what's your biggest weakness? And they're like, I work too hard. Right? That's their entire sense of self is built on cushioning any kind of self criticism as an actual tool of perfection, right? Like, I spend too much time proofreading. It's such a terrible failure. Perfectionism functions as a sort of PR mechanism for people, right? Which is why it's so tightly tied to pleasing and achievement and likability. And obviously, I've ranted on the podcast before about likability being revolting. But I do think that perfectionism is like the PR of rigor. It's like, oh, I, you know, I never make mistakes. Like, look at all. And any mistake then becomes an opportunity to gaslight and reframe, right, as skill setting. Yeah, but anyone who hears that knows that it's not true. Like, I mean, maybe it is true. Maybe your biggest flaw is that you work too hard. But also that means, like, probably you go home and you're, like, a mess. (laughs) You know, you're extremely stressed. It's not good for you. You're drinking too much. You're worried about shopping too much. Yeah. So like, is that your biggest flaw? Sure. But it's manifesting in a lot of ways that you're not being vulnerable about. Right. And so it's almost like a trick question because you can't answer that, you know, in an honest way. Anyone who's asking that question isn't like, tell me about your trauma or tell me about the last time you fucked up. Uh, and all of the damage it <laughs> caused. Like, they want you to blow smoke up their ass, I think. I don't know. It's a, it's all very, like, a circle jerky. Can you fake it? Like, people, are, I, I honestly think, like, are you going to be a problem? It, that's the question that they're really asking is, like, 
if we do shit that you don't agree with, are you going to be a problem? <laughs> are you going to cause a scene? I <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I the the gal that cuts my hair, I see her a couple times a year, and I I really like her. We have absolutely nothing in common, which I love, because then we can just be honest together all the time. Because we're not we're not hanging out, we're not peers. I'm older than her, or whatever. And she has two daughters, and they're my kid's age. And she was saying that the youngest one just told her a couple weeks ago, like, Mommy, I just really need you to be more gentle. And I I cackled so hard, Laura. I laughed my fucking ass off because I'm like, yeah. I, what I like about her is that she is also brutal, right? And she has a sensibility about, like, she's like, I'm just going to tell you that that is just not acceptable. We're just not doing that, which obviously I share and we just, you know, as my hair is all up wet and the towel, we're just like falling out in this, in this beauty shop or whatever around all these middle-aged boomers getting their hair done in curlers. I mean, just clowning about, you know, what it, what it means to raise different kinds of white gals in the culture and like what that, what, what brutality looks like as a parenting strategy of femininity. I mean, it was really a delightful invigorating moment that was the opposite of perfectionism and all of this bullshit and hyper self-management. I love that you had that in like a moment of play, you know, like to kind of critique because I feel like in a lot of cases, criticism like that, like be more gentle. Women would be like, I have to be more gentle. I have to create conflict less. I should be more likable. Um, and so for you guys to like, just reject that and laugh about it, I, I feel like that's important. And I feel like when I am able to build community, it's around being honest and saying like, this thing is not okay. Creating a, like a meme, maybe of a collective feeling of harm yeah, or disgust or right. Yeah. And encouraging other people to feel okay with those emotions so that they don't also suppress them. It's just like a collective trauma to like try and seek perfectionism because if you are around other people that won't admit that they're wrong, that like sweep anything negative under the rug, then it is becomes like something where you find more fault in yourself. Like you just are more self-critical. Like you're not able to understand that like what you're going through is a shared problem. I mean, it's just extremely, extremely toxic And I feel like perfectionists are about the bait and switch, right? So they're all like, look at me, look at me, I work so hard. And on the other hand, they're doing the least, right? Durable labor very often. And they're doing avoidant, anxious stuff. And it makes them not reliable as collaborators, as ethical collaborators. I mean, as you said earlier, they'll throw you under the bus. Patriarchy gets a bad rap, understandably, as like white dudes hoarding wealth and power and smashing. But as we always do on the podcast, it's the white women who are enabling that. And I think perfectionism is an enabling disorder of of affect and labor that is fundamentally used in the service of surveillance to carceral and patriarchy as a form of white supremacy. There's just no way around it. So you think you're getting a hard worker, but what you're really getting is a, a little fascist who's going to do the bidding over you and above and beyond you and is willing to destroy anything so that they don't have to face their own monstrosity. Mm-hmm.